You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Hello and welcome to Kensington. Whether you're joining us in person at one of our Michigan campuses or online from anywhere, we're so glad you've chosen to spend this time with us. Hey, I'm Jill Cascone, the campus director at our Clarkston campus. And I wanted to take a minute as you're settling into your seats or your couch at home to mention that we will be taking communion together during service. This tradition is so special. You've probably heard the bread or wafer represents the body of Jesus and the wine and juice represents his blood. That means we're recognizing his sacrifice for you and for me personally. And when we eat and drink, we're remembering and accepting this incredible act of love. So please join us even if you're home and all you have are cheddar goldfish and almond milk. Grab whatever you have so you're ready for the special moment later in the service. Hey, did you hear the news about the upcoming Move Out Gathering recently? We mentioned it last weekend and across our social channels, and it's something I just wanted to make sure everybody hears about. So listen up, people. This is something you don't want to miss. Okay, sorry for the mom voice, but really, this is something that makes Kensington, Kensington. We are passionate about moving out. That means we share God's love with our neighbors near and far as God pours into us we pour into others. So this is one of those events that is the heart of who we are here and what we believe God is calling us to do. This Move Out Gathering's theme is God's heart for humanity, which is exactly what he gives us as we continue to follow him. Our heart also starts beating for humanity, every single person made in his image. There's going to be awesome music led by Jalen Seawright and others, along with breakout sessions and a panel discussion. There's going to be teaching from Danny Cox, Craig Mays, and Chuck Mingo. Chuck is a teaching pastor at Crossroads Church in Cincinnati and also is the founder of Undivided. Undivided is a movement bound together by faith and our shared humanity to build relationships that further racial solidarity and promote justice. We are so grateful to have the opportunity to learn from Chuck as we continue to navigate through this complex and ever-changing world. Please join us. This free two-day event is held on the evening of March 19th and Saturday morning, March 20th. And you can participate in person at our Troy campus or by joining us through our live stream. Register now at kensingtonchurch.org slash moveoutgathering. Let's return now to our service. We're in the fourth week of Personified, which is the perfect series to lead us into Easter and spring and new life. As we learn about the person of Jesus and all his experiences leading up to the cross, I am just struck again by the magnitude of his love for humanity. That's why he went to the cross. It was love for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, I want to welcome you back to life. Good morning. I want everybody to stand to your feet and, and help us sing this song this morning, all right? Come on.
Hey, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Fantastic. What a great way to start off the day. And you guys can all have a seat as we continue on in our day. And for those of you here in the room, I want to say welcome. So glad that you all are here. For those of you who are joining us via stream, wherever you are, grateful that we can be connected in this manner through the gift of technology. And I love that song because it's a powerful reminder to all of us that we are not alone, that the God of the universe is with us. And as a result, as we heard in the song, he will come through for us. And for some of us, we're just going through a really, really difficult season right now. And so we need that reminder. I needed that reminder this morning. But at the same time, I was also reminded that when God is present in our life, one of the things that we experience is his love in a greater, more profound way. And as God loves us, one of the things that he asks us to do is not just to keep it to ourselves, but rather to move out and to love the people around us as well. Even, and that includes some of the most difficult people in our lives, people who we would even consider to be our enemies. 
And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we're in the fourth week of our series, Personified. And we're going to be stepping into a moment, and Steve's going to lead us in this, into a musical thought that really communicates this in a powerful way as to how God desires for us to love and to move towards these people in our life. And so let's take this in. for the longest time, Jesus saying to all, including us, love your enemies. Love the Lord thy God, <laughs> well sure, and love thy neighbor as thyself. All right, but love thy neighbor? <laughs> My Baki heart said no, not till they change and not till they do something to become more lovable. How can I, I mean, why should I? But then one day, I looked it up and it said what follows. Love your enemies, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Well, that changes everything. For your own sake and for the sake of mankind, see only what God sees and refuse to be hoodwinked into beholding an enemy and let nothing and nobody trick you into letting go of love, no matter what. So love your enemies? If we could, it would. And when we do, it will change everything. in the face of all your pride it moves away the mad inside it's always anger's own worst enemy even when the jury and the judge say it's alright to hold a grudge it's the whisper in your ear saying set it free forgiveness Now to reach the impossible, 
forgiveness. Forgiveness. Wow, that was so powerful. And even as I was just thinking and just reading the words of that poem and just reflecting on the words of that song that Steve, you led us so beautifully in, and I really felt so convicted this past week. And just as I was sitting over there and just taking that moment in, the last line of the poem that Ashley read for us spoke to me in such a profound way that when we actually choose to live in this way, it will change our life, it will change everything. But if you're anything like me, so often my response to those people who I would consider to be my enemies and God telling me to love them, so often my response is, mm -mm, God, do you understand what they've done to me? I don't want to love them. Not until they change, not until they actually become and do something that's lovable. But yet, even in spite of this, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to live in this way. And it's so hard, which is why we need God's help and it's not something that we can do ourselves. And so this is what we're going to be talking about today. This is the direction that we're headed as we're in the fourth week of this series, Personified, where we've been looking at seven very real and human moments in Jesus' life. And in this series, we've looked at topics like beauty and how it moved the very heart of Jesus. And, and also about pressure and expectations and how Jesus refused to allow them to dictate the direction of his life and also what it looks like to have a heart of a servant. And today we are going to be challenged. We've already been challenged, but we're gonna to continue to be challenged because what Jesus tells us to do is to live in a way that is so different than the way of this world to those people who have hurt us, who have stolen from us, who have even betrayed us. He asks us, to live and to respond in a way that is so different than what our natural inclination and our human nature would say. And so I'm really looking forward to today. And so as we continue on, would you join me in prayer? And so Lord, we thank you, God. And I recognize, Lord, even right now, Lord, for so many of us, Lord, you have spoken so powerfully to us. And so as we continue on in this day, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would continue to speak to us, your people, Lord. Because every single one of us, Lord, we have people in our lives who we would consider to be our enemies, Lord. People who we struggle with, Lord. People who we have such a hard time loving. But Lord, I pray that today, Lord, that you would show us as you have loved us, God, that you call us to love these people as well and show us how to do this, but also give us the strength and give us the courage to do this as well. And so we thank you, Lord that you give us everything that we need to live this life that you have called us to live. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. And so this week, as I was thinking about this message, I was reminded of a story that I read, a story that I heard years ago. And it was a story that happened between neighbors. And it really centered around this 24-year-old man named Greg McCallum. And Greg, one night, he decided to throw an epic party. He invited a ton of people over to his house. There was really loud music, and this party stretched into the night. And so, of course, some of his neighbors had a problem with this. And so one of his neighbors called the police, who came and basically shut the party down. And afterwards, Greg was so angry. He was furious. 
And for some reason, he thought, he didn't know who this neighbor was, but for some reason, he had it in his mind that it was his 72-year-old neighbor, a man named Frank. And so the next morning, he wanted to get back at him. And so he made the decision to go and break into his house. But the thing was, was that Frank and his wife were home. And so Frank's just going through his house and he sees Greg standing in his hallway. And so he goes to confront him. And that's when Greg pulled out a knife. But what Greg didn't know was that Frank was an army vet and he also was a retired championship boxer. And so before Greg knew what happened to him, Frank hit him with two right hooks and dropped Greg to the ground and basically just subdued him until the police came. And after, when the police came, this is what they saw. And this is actually the mugshot. And you're gonna see Greg's on the left, he's 24 years old, Frank, 72 years old, is on the right. Exactly, right? It's funny, and one of the things that the police said was that when they actually saw Greg, they thought he had been in a car accident because that's how hard Frank hit him. And when we hear a story like this, for every, all of us, right? Like, that's our response, right? We're like, none of us, none of us here or watching on stream had the reaction of, oh, you know what, I hope Greg is okay. Maybe I should see if I can bring him a casserole, right? Anyone thinking that? No, of course not, right? None of us. If, if anything, we were thinking, I wish Frank had an opportunity to get another uppercut in there, or another punch in there. Because we look at Greg and we're like, he got what he deserved. And when people hurt us, when they steal from us, when they break into our house, we want to give it right back to them. The pain that they have inflicted on us, we want to give it right back. We want them to experience the same thing. But in the story that we're going to be looking at today, Jesus shows us something different. And what he shows us actually is so incredibly countercultural, and it actually cuts against the grain of our very human nature. Because Jesus, in the story that we're going to be looking at, he doesn't tell us, but he actually did something more difficult. And he showed us through his life a more beautiful way to live. And that if we actually choose to do this, it will result in us having more beautiful relationships, but also be a part of creating a more beautiful world for the people around us as well. And so this story is found in the Gospel of Matthew. And so let's jump right in and see what Matthew has to say to us. It says this, and he paints the picture as to what was going on. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you, you to eat the Passover? And so Jesus replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And so as we talked about last week, what Passover is, is that it's a spring festival that commemorates the liberation by God of his people from slavery in Egypt. And it's a big deal. And at the very first Passover, God told his people, I'm going to do something extraordinary tonight, and I do not want you to forget. I want you to pass this story on to your children, to your children's children, and all the generations after. And this meal, this Passover meal, told that story. And so back in Jesus' day, Jews from all the surrounding regions would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so Jerusalem, which typically had a population of about 30,000, would swell to two, almost 200,000 for this event. And so this was the meal that Jesus and his disciples were preparing to eat on that Thursday night. And it would be Jesus' final meal, his last supper, if you will, before he went to the cross. And so Matthew then continues on in the story by saying, 
When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And then Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. And the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Those are tough words. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. And when we think about the Last Supper, which is what was happening here, probably one of the images that immediately comes to mind for many of us is Leonardo da Vinci's 15th century painting, right? And I remember I had it hanging up in my house growing up. But when we actually see his painting, what we actually see is that da Vinci got so many of the historical details wrong. Because, and I just want to point out just a few, because when you look out those back windows, what you see is, is that it was light outside, which never would have been the case, because the Passover meal was always eaten in the evening after sunset. And the Passover is also called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. But if you actually look carefully at the table and look at the bread on the table, what you see is leavened bread, bread with yeast in it. And also a huge faux pas in this, in terms of historical details, is the table and the seating arrangement and the, and the chairs. Because it's a very Eurocentric view. Because back in Jesus' day, it was customary for people to recline on the floor on cushions and they would have been leaning on their left side, and they would have been eating with their right hand. And you're going to actually see a picture, and it's going to come up, and this is how they would have been positioned. And they would have been seated or sort of lying down and, and uh, gathering around a U-shaped table called a triclinium. And Jesus, as the host of the meal, he wouldn't have been sitting in the center, but rather he would have been sitting on that left table, as you see there. And if you look at the next image, it actually shows this because that left table was considered to be the head table and Jesus would have been in that second position. And so this is how they were seated on this night. And while they were eating this all important meal, Jesus said something to his disciples that would have shocked every single one of them and that he told them, one of you is going to betray me. And after Jesus said this, we have to understand, you probably could have heard a pin drop in the room. Because these people, these 13 people had been together for the past three years. Almost every waking moment spent together, they were attached to the hip. And these disciples, they had spent that time learning from Jesus, seeing him do extraordinary miracles. They were closer than brothers. And now Jesus was saying, one of you is going to stab me in the back. And so every single one of them probably wanted to know, who is this person, Jesus? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Because it's not me. And then Peter, who is the loud, the nosy disciple, almost he seemed like he had no shame. John tells us in his gospel that Peter asked John to ask Jesus, who is this? And this is what John writes. He says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, so John is talking about himself right now, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning, and this is John, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And so understanding how they were positioned and how they were really seated, that they would have been lying on their left side, what we know from this is that in this seating arrangement that John was sitting to the right of Jesus, that's where he was. 
for that meal. And then after John asked him this question, this was Jesus' response. He said, the one who's going to betray me is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And this is also something else that we have to understand about the historical details of the day. Because it was customary for the host of the meal, who was Jesus, to serve his most honored guests, who would have been sitting on either side of him. And so from the fact that Jesus served Judas, and also since Judas dipped his hand in the same bowl as Jesus, we have to conclude that Judas was sitting next to Jesus that day in a place of honor. And guess who put him there? It was the host of the meal. It was Jesus. Jesus, understanding what Judas had done and what would ultimately happen to him, he put him in that seat. And imagine being Jesus, spending three years of your life with someone, caring for them, teaching them, investing in them, opening up every single door you could so that they could, so, so that they could succeed, only to have them turn around and stab you in the back. And Judas was one of 12 people on this earth who was closest to Jesus. And I just think about how must have Jesus have felt when G understanding that Judas had done this. And for so many of us here, we don't have to think too hard because we've experienced this in our life and that we've been betrayed and we've experienced the devastation, the heartbreak, the pain, the anger, the desire for vengeance. And we have to understand that Jesus experienced those same feelings. Because when he was on this earth, Jesus was fully God, but at the same time, he was fully human. And sometimes I don't think we focus on that second part. And as a human being, just like you and me, he experienced those same things. But yet, in the midst of this, what he did was that he chose a different way. And that to this person, who so many of us would have considered to be our enemy, what Jesus did, how he responded, was that he not only invited him to this all-important meal, but as we talked about last week, he washed his feet. And he also put him in a place of honor, and he served him that night. And one of the reasons why I believe that Jesus did this was that he was living out what he told you and I to do. Because Jesus also spoke these words. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what Jesus was doing that night. And so this is the question, right? Because you and I both know how difficult it is to love these people in our lives. We all have them. How in the world do you do this? And so today, from what happened here in this Last Supper scene and really from the life of Jesus, I want to suggest two ways that we can move towards doing this in our lives in a greater way. Two ways that we can actually take this step. And the first is this. If we want to love our enemies, we have to refuse to retaliate. And that we have to refuse to return like for like, evil for evil. And every single one of us have felt that urge to retaliate. And I will never forget this one incident that happened to me years ago. And it was when my wife, Robin, and I had first gotten married and we were living in Boston and I was going to seminary. And so one morning I was driving to school to learn about Jesus, no less. So keep that in mind. 
right? And I was driving it, and I was on this tiny two-lane road that's so typical of New England. And I was driving at a fine speed, and this woman came up beside me, and she started tailgating me. And it felt like she was like this close to my bumper. And it, it felt like she was eating my bumper for breakfast. That's how close she was. And so I was just in the car saying, hey, you know what? Maybe she'll turn off and just breathe and it's going to be okay. But she kept on doing it. And it kept going and going and going. And at a certain point, I said, you know what? Enough's enough. And I just slammed on my brakes. And she had to do everything she could to prevent her car from hitting mine. And then, exactly, that's how I felt, right? All right. right? And then I started driving again. Right? And of course, she was absolutely livid. And I could see her in my rearview mirror. She was honking her horn. She was flashing me her high beam. She was yelling at me, showing me her favorite finger, and all of that was going on. Right? And she tried at one point to sort of get into the next lane and pass me, but I refused to let her. And this kept on going on and on and on. Right? And she did something, and I did something, and she did something, and I did something, and it kept on getting worse and worse and worse until finally she turned off. And I was like, yes, I won, right? No, that's not what I thought, right? Um, But when I look back, not the proudest moment in my life. But this is the thing. Like, we all want to respond in that manner at one point or another, in that when someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back, right? We want to fight fire with fire, right? That's how so many of us feel. And because it seems so unfair when people do these things to us, when we feel like we're the victim of these things, it feels so unfair. And what we want is justice. But so often when we retaliate, when we return like for like, what is returned is not justice, but rather what is returned is vengeance. And what God tells us very clearly in the scriptures is that he tells us vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so what he's telling us is that it is not our job to hand this out. But rather, our responsibility is to trust him and to leave it in his hands and to trust that in the end that he will make everything right. And this is the thing about retaliation, something that I learned that day and I realized in such a, in such a powerful way, is that when we retaliate, the situation just quickly escalates. Is that, and we've seen this, we've experienced this in our lives, we see this with our kids, we see this definitely on social media. And that when somebody does something and then somebody returns the favor and then somebody does something again and somebody returns the favor, it keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. And oftentimes what also escalates is the hatred, the pain, and sometimes even the violence. And one of the reasons why we retaliate is because we think that it's going to make us feel better. And studies have actually shown that temporarily it does. But in the long run, it actually hurts us because that that anger it lasts longer and it begins to eat away at us. And that's why when we fight fire with fire, there are no winners, there are only losers because everyone gets burnt. And that's why in this Old Testament book called Proverbs, and it's a book of wisdom, and it tells us how to live a life that is, uh, how to live life skillfully. This is what the person says, this is what God tells us. And that he says, it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. It's to our benefit not to retaliate. And this is the thing, that when, like we talked about, when Jesus was on this earth, he was a human being just like you and me. And at that supper, his last supper, we have to imagine and we have to understand that there was a part of him and probably a big part of him that wanted to give Judas exactly what he deserved. 
a part of him that wanted to expose him, ostracize him, punish him, maybe even embarrass him. But he chose a different way, a more beautiful way. And he modeled it for you and me. And he showed us it is actually possible to live in this way. And some people, they might look at this story and look at Jesus' response and say, you know what, that's so weak, and actually view it in this way. But if you have ever tried to live in this way, you understand that it actually takes greater courage, greater strength, not to return like for like, not to return evil for evil. And if anyone understood this, it's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I remember a story that I, I read, and it was about, it was about Martin Luther King Jr. in the first few years that he was living in Montgomery, Alabama. And he had gotten involved in the civil rights movement and he was becoming a larger and larger figure on the national stage. And of course, as, he, as this happened, more and more people knew about him and they started targeting him. And on this one particular Sunday, he was preaching at a local church and so he, his wife and his seven-month-old daughter were alone at home. And a man pulled up to their house, got out of the car and threw an explosive onto their porch and it detonated. And thankfully, no one was hurt. But I was, I was reading the story again this past week and I was thinking to myself, what if that happened to my family? What if that happened to my wife? What if that happened to my child? How would I have felt? And I can imagine how they felt was, they were angry, they wanted vengeance, they were afraid and all of these feelings. And they probably wanted to go back and do the same to that person, to find them and to do the same to that person, inflict the same pain and have them experience the same fear. And when people heard about what had happened, they began to gather at Dr. King's house. And he saw this crowd gather and he came out and he basically said these words. And this is a paraphrase of what he said. He said, I want you to love your enemies, be good to them, love them, and let them know you love them. And I don't know about you, but in that moment, I don't think I could have actually said that. But yet that was his response. And his response could have been something very different that day. But he said to the people there, do not return like for like. Do not return evil for evil. But rather, what I want you to do is I want you to love. I want you to move in a completely different direction so that this world will be a more beautiful place. And it's because I believe that Dr. King understood something so important, absolutely essential, what Jesus is modeling to us in this story of the Last Supper. And he actually communicated this in a message that he taught, and it's, and it's crazy, actually 60 years ago to this day in the city of Detroit. And this is what he said as a part of the message, exactly what we're talking about today. To return evil for evil only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Because somewhere along the line, somebody must have sense enough, somebody must have morality enough, somebody must have religion enough to cut off the chain of hate and evil. And this can only be done by meeting hate with love. For you see, in a real sense, if we return hate for hate, violence for violence, and all of that, it just ends up destroying everybody. And nobody wins in the long run. And it's the strong man who stands up in the midst of violence and refuses to return it. 
It is the strong man, not the weak man, who stands up in the midst of hate and returns love. I've been thinking about those words this past week. It requires extraordinary strength and courage to live in this way. And that's why, as we've been talking about, we cannot do it by ourselves. We need God's help. Refuse to retaliate. And we're going to continue on in the story in a moment. But what we also wanted to do at this time is we also wanted to receive our offering. And so we're going to receive our offering. And whenever we come to this moment, I always consider the offering moment as a sacred moment because it really is a continuation of what we're doing today, as a continuation of our worship. And offering is not primarily about money, but so much it's about mission and being able to participate in what God is doing. And if you want to know what God, some of the things that God is doing in and through this community, we want to invite you to come to the Move Out Conference that's going to be happening in two weeks. You can be in this room. You can also watch it via stream because there are some amazing things that are happening. But if you would like to give today, there are a number of ways that you can do so. And you're going to see them on the screen. And the first is by texting the word Kensington to 77977. You can also give via our app or our website, which Robin and I, that's how we give. Or you can also mail a check to our physical location right here at our Troy campus. And for those of us who are in the room right now, we also have buckets at every entrance and exit if you would like to place your offering in there. But we want to say thank you for your generosity and thank you for giving and so that we can really impact the world and carry out the message of Jesus and communicate that message. And so going back into the story, what we see is that what we see at the Last Supper is that Jesus refused to retaliate. But what he also tells us to do, and we see this so clearly in his life, is that what he tells us to do is to love, not like our enemies. And that is a very, very important distinction. And I don't know if you know this, but there are actually three words in the English language for love. And there's the one that we're probably most familiar with, I love you. But then also there's the word, I love ya, and then there's, I love ya, I love ya, and so there it is, right? I actually had a hard time doing the last one, right? So it's, I love you, I love ya, and I love ya, right? Anyone actually heard of the last one here? Anyone? Nobody. JLo actually did a song on it, and I actually read a whole article that actually talks about the difference between love and love. But in all honesty, those last two words that you see there are not official words in the English language. But the thing is, is that the reason why they've been created is as you go down that list, the degree of love decreases. Because in that blog article, what they said was, law, L-U-H, is basically a little bit more than like, right? So we're moving into the love category, right? And so there's law, there's love, and then there's love, L-O-V-E, right? And like I said, those last two words are not official words in the English language, but it's a great example of people creating words to describe the different types and degrees of love. And when you actually look at different languages, including the Greek language, because of there are different types and degrees of love, there are different words to describe or to really communicate this. And the Greek language, like I said, is one of those languages because they have many, many different words to express love. And we see four of them in the scriptures. And the first type of love that we see in the scriptures is this love called storge love. And it's used to describe familial love. And it's the love that parents have towards their children, that siblings have towards one another, that husbands and wives share. And really, it's towards anyone who we would consider to be family. And then there's eros love, which is a romantic love. 
And then we have phileo love, which is where the name of the city Philadelphia comes from. It's the city of brotherly love. And it's the love between close friends who are almost like siblings. And then there's the word for love, which is the most common in the New Testament. And it's the highest level of love referenced in the Bible. And that is agape love. And this is what's so so important for us to understand about agape love. It is not primarily based on feelings or emotions. Because we all know that feelings and emotions shift and change. And we can fall in love with someone one day, and the next day we can fall out of love with them. And so what agape love is, is that it's a choice. It's a deliberate decision to seek the other person's best and not desire anything in return. And therefore, it's a sacrificial love. It's a love that loves the unlovable. And it is a relentless love, a love that keeps coming and never, ever gives up, no matter what happens. And when we look at the Last Supper and how Jesus responded to Judas, we see this love in action. And that at that time, it didn't matter what Judas did, but Jesus had made a decision. I am going to, I am going to seek God's best for you. And he didn't expect anything in return. And this is the type of love that Jesus tells us to love our enemies with in that last verse that we read earlier. And this is what Jesus said. Let's go back to that verse in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, you have heard that it was said, love. And he's talking about agape love. Agape love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, agape love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he was saying, when he's talking about love here, he's saying, I want you to make a deliberate decision to seek their best and to not want anything in return. And what's so important for us to understand here is that Jesus doesn't tell us to like our enemies. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? When it comes to those people who have hurt you, who have stolen from you, who have betrayed you, he's not saying, oh, you know what? I want you to have those warm, fuzzy feelings. I want you to feel this affection towards them. That is not what he is saying. He's not telling us to like our enemies, but rather he is saying, I want you to love them. That oftentimes, in spite of how we feel towards that person, he is saying, I want you to choose to seek their best and to not want anything in return. That is what he is saying here. That is what agape love is. That's what it means to love our enemies. And one of the first times that I actually saw this in my life was with a friend of mine back in college named Diane. And I remember in that season of her life, she was really struggling with her boss. And she couldn't even stand the sight of him. And so one day she decided to put this agape love thing to the test. And she said, you know what, I'm going to try this out. And she said, one of the ways I'm going to try to love him is by praying for him. And not praying that he'd lose his job so she wouldn't have to deal with him, but rather actually praying for God's best for him and his family and that he'd actually be successful in his job. And she said that when she first started praying for this guy, that it was so hard. And every morning she would try to do this and she would have to force herself to do it. But as she did this day after day after day, it got easier. And as she continued to pray for him, God began to slowly transform her heart. And as he slowly began to transform her heart, it changed the way that she saw him. And that she began to see him as God sees him. Somebody of value and of worth. And then it changed the way that she treated him. And the amazing thing is, is that her boss noticed, saw a change in her attitude, change in their interactions, and it transformed their relationship. 
And this happened over a course of about a year to about a year and a half. And as a college student who was trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing and what does it actually look like and mean to follow Jesus, it just spoke to me in a powerful way. And it showed me that what Jesus talks about in the scriptures is actually real. It actually works. When we actually choose to move in this way, it actually creates not only a more beautiful life for us, but a more beautiful world that we have the privilege of living in. And so this is what he asks us to do. He says, I want you to love in this way. And so this is the question that I want to ask all of us today. Who is someone in our life right now who we would consider to be an enemy? And it could be a neighbor. It might be our boss, another coworker. It may be our spouse. It may be one of our children. But who is that person for us today? We probably don't have to think very hard. That person's face probably pops up to mind. And this is the second question that I want us to wrestle with today is that what would it look like for us this week to refuse to retaliate and instead choose to agape love that person? That despite our feelings, that we would choose to actually seek their best and expect nothing in return. Because Jesus showed us in such a powerful way at the Last Supper how to do this, that this actually is possible. And then, less than 24 hours later, he showed us the greatest picture of agape love when he went to the cross and he died for your sins and for mine and the rest of humanity. And he did this. The scriptures tell us that when, while we were still his enemies, while we were enemies of God, he made a deliberate decision to seek our best. And he sent and he sacrificed his one and only son so that we could have life. And he tells us, as I have loved you in this extraordinary way, now I want you to go out and I want you to show this same love to the people around you because it will transform you and it will transform them. And so today, what we wanted to do is to remember this and to celebrate what he did for us on the cross. We want to take communion together. And for those of you who are watching on stream, is that if you have not, if you don't have a cracker or a piece of bread, if you don't have the elements with you, it's not too late. And so I want to invite you, go to the kitchen right now and grab whatever you have, a little bit of juice, whatever it may be, a cracker. And we'd love for us to take this together as a family. And for those of us here in this room, all of us should have received one of these when we walked in. And it's a little bit tricky. And so there are really two flaps on these things. And so the first flap, if we peel it back, will expose the cracker. And then the second flap, if we peel it back, it'll expose the juice. And so we wanted to take the juice and the cracker together today. And so I wanted to read the words of the Apostle Paul as we enter into this moment. And he writes, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus, his body that was broken for us, let's take and eat together. And then Paul continues on by saying, in the same way, after supper, He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's take the juice together, which represents the blood of Christ spilled for us. 
And so, God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you don't just simply tell us to love our enemies, Lord. You did that, Lord. And you showed us through your life how to do that. And you did it for us. That when we were your enemies, you came for us and you paid the price so that we could ultimately have life. And every single one of us, God, we have these people in our life, people who we would consider our enemies. So I pray, Lord, that this week that you would show us how to love them, Lord, as you have loved us, how to serve them, how to honor them, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to speak well of them, to seek your best for them, God. And I pray, Lord, again, that we cannot do it by ourselves. So Lord, give us the courage, give us the strength to be able to move towards them in this way. We thank you, Lord. And we pray all of these things in your son's name, amen. And so right now, we're gonna be moving into a moment, really a musical thought that speaks to what we just experienced right now. And so I wanna invite you, we can just allow these words to really speak to your heart. If you would like to sing them out, we wanna invite you to do so, but let's just take this moment in and enter it into it together.
We're gonna sing one more song if you guys wanna stand and sing with us.
I was just thinking over there that reckless, this word is such a beautiful description of agape love, being utterly unconcerned about the consequences of one's actions. And that we as a community, my prayer has been this week, is that we as a community would be these types of people who go out and to live and to love in this way. And so let's go out and do that. But also, I also want to invite you back this coming Wednesday night at 7 o'clock because we have midweek here and we're going to continue on in our series where we're looking at what has been called the greatest chapter in the Bible. And so we'd love for you to join us either in person or via stream. And if anyone would like to receive prayer, our prayer team is out in the lobby. And also, if we have any guests, we'd love to meet you. Love for you to stop by the hub. But thanks so much for being here, everyone. Have a great rest of your weekend. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.